you to be commended for your bravery in being here and your uh, patience in listening to me twice. So, but I believe that you listened to another brother three times on the on Saturday, so uh, or on, on New Year's Day. But um, we're continuing now in chapter 10 and reading from verse 19. We're going to think now about the effects of the sacrifice of Christ. We thought of the value of that sacrifice, uh, the will of God, the work of Christ, the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now we're thinking from verse 19 to 25 of the effects, the results, the outcomes of the work of Christ. Verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated or inaugurated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Amen. We discover, brothers and sisters, that the work of Christ has tremendous practical effects and results. And in this section, I just want to notice that there are three possessions every child of God has. And then there are three practices that every child of God should demonstrate. And so in verses 19, 20 and 21, there are three possessions. You'll notice the word having. Having. Then when we come to the last three verses of this section, let us. Let us. Let us. These are exhortations, practical exhortations that indicate for us habits of character that should mark every believer. And so there are three possessions I want to talk about uh, in this session and three practices. And these all flow from the value of the work of Christ on the cross. The three possessions. <clears throat> you know, I suppose the Hebrews maybe thought that by <clears throat> turning to Christianity, they were losing an awful lot. You see, as we pointed out, there was already, and at that time there was still, a very impressive temple in Jerusalem. We sometimes forget this. You remember the disciples said to the Lord Jesus, See what manner of stones, and what manner of building. As the tourists, as the visitors, they probably weren't called tourists in those days, as they came up to Jerusalem, they were impressed. Herod had rebuilt, renovated the temple. It was for him a bit of a vanity project probably. But nevertheless, there was a structure in Jerusalem 
that was impressive. And there was a priesthood uh, that was functioning. We've already thought about the priest standing offering. And there was a system of sacrifices and ritual that was very impressive to watch and to listen to. And I suppose, well, I better make a confession. <clears throat> I, I like cathedrals. I, I know, I know they have no spiritual value, but I like to go into cathedrals. There's something very impressive. And you know what happens when you step into some of these great cathedrals? The first thing you do, it's, it's interesting to watch when people come in, because what they do is they look up. Because these cathedrals with their soaring pillars and then this wonderful, very often ornate ceiling, they're designed to just pull your, pull your eyes up and to elevate your, your view. I think cathedrals are wonderful pieces of architecture. And I must confess to you too, we're in confession mode at the moment. Um, I don't mind a little bit of ritual, you know. I, there's something in me that quite, quite likes that. And uh, there's nothing quite like a Gregorian chant, is there? I know you all like chants uh, in Aberdeen. You're all into that. But there is something about a religion that has physical structure, that has ritual and ceremony, that looks good, that sounds good, that even sometimes smells good. There's something attract. Well, I, I think there is anyway. Maybe you don't, but I, I find myself attracted to that. And I imagine the Hebrews might think, "Well, we've we've turned our back on all that. We've given up so much." And the writer is saying, "No, no. You've given up nothing. You've gained." You know, I was thinking about this. <clears throat> this is an old tactic, isn't it? It's a tactic of Satan to say that. If you follow God and what he wants, you will lose. That's exactly the tactic he used in the Garden of Eden. And he suggests to, to Eve that, you know, God has just put this rule because he wants to restrict you. If you obey him, you're going to lose out. Young people, can I just say, the world seems very attractive. And even the religion of the world with its cathedrals and Gregorian chants can seem very attractive but remember this that when you turn your back on that you discover that what you have in Christ can never be compared it, can, it puts it completely in the shade and so the writer says you have three things three possessions that you could never have under Judaism that that impressive physical sensory religion could never give you here they are verse 19 you have boldness talk about that in a minute that's the first one, you have boldness secondly <coughs> verse 20 you have a new and living way thirdly in verse 21 you have a high priest now these are wonderful things I want to try and show that you could never have that in Judaism. And let me say this right away, that these are not the possessions of Bible students, or gifted teachers, or especially holy Christians. These are the birthright of every believer in Christ. And so the youngest, the most immature, perhaps the, the least learned, 
the least experienced believer, each one of them has these three things. Let's just think about them. First of all, having therefore, and the idea there is, he's not saying have boldness, he says because you have boldness. And this is not the idea that some of us are, are bolder than others. Uh, it's, not, it's not like Peter praying in the book of the Acts that with all boldness they might speak the word. That's not the idea here at all. This is a kind of liberty and freedom that is the birthright of every believer in Christ. Having boldness. Now this word boldness, very interesting word. It literally means freedom to speak or freedom of speech. The idea is this, that you have complete liberty to express yourself without any fear, without any reservation, without any thought really. Now we understand this concept quite well because you see when you're, when you're in the company of people that you really know and you really love and they love you and you can completely relax and you can talk about things with them that you could, you'd never mention with strangers you'd never, because you have boldness so you're with your family, you're with your friends and uh, you're, you're sitting around and you're chatting and you're enjoying time together you're relaxed, you can be completely open with them because you have boldness, that's the idea you have freedom of speech and so in verse 19 of chapter 10 having therefore brethren boldness this word began as freedom of speech, freedom to speak, and then it gradually took on the meaning of just being liberty and complete freedom. Being at home in somebody's presence. Now brothers and sisters, this is absolutely wonderful. I don't think we appreciate this as we should. But what the writer is saying is this, that in virtue of the work of Christ, every believer in Christ, whether you've just been saved yesterday, every believer in Christ has absolute freedom and liberty in the presence of God. And he says, we have liberty to enter into the holiest. Now you will know that in the tabernacle there were three compartments. There was the court, then there was the holy place, then there was the holiest. Remember, make yourself a Hebrew when you read this. <laughs> make yourself a Jew. A Hebrew listening to this would be absolutely staggered. Because he knew that he could go into the court... But he couldn't go into the holy place. And he would know that the priests, they could go into the holy place. But they couldn't go into the holiest of all. The most holy. The immediate presence of God. And he would know that only one man could do that. The high priest. And he could only do it once a year. Now I don't know how the high priest felt. When he parted that curtain. And stepped into the holiest of all. But I can guarantee you this, he did not go in there with boldness. Because you remember what happened? Aaron's two sons had to be dragged out in their clothes. They went in presumptuously and the fire from the altar consumed them. And in the immediate presence of God it was a fearful place to be. And 
I can quite imagine. But as the high priest leaves the natural light of the courtyard and goes into the light of the lampstand in the holy place and then goes in and penetrates the veil and goes into the light of the Shekinah glory glowing the very presence of God as God dwelt in the holiest of all I can guarantee you that he did not go with boldness the wonderful thing is dear brother, dear sister where the high priest went in picture you go in reality and where he went trembling and fearing you go with absolute confidence and boldness how could you possibly do that the writer says by the blood of Jesus that's it let's just think about this brothers and sisters that I have access that the Old Testament saints could only dream of and when they thought of it they perhaps trembled to think that a man could stand in the immediate presence of God and yet the writer says you Christians, you believers in the Lord Jesus you have this absolute liberty why don't we use it more? why don't we use it more? we have this absolute liberty do you believe this? We have this absolute liberty of coming right into the presence of God, into the holiest of all. And every time I bow my knees in prayer and I enter the august presence of the God of eternity, I do so through the blood of Jesus. You remember that the blood and the tabernacle, it started at the at the gate probably where the animal was slain and then it was taken to the burnt the altar of burnt offering and then the blood was taken further it was taken in and it was placed at certain times it was smeared on the incense altar and then it was taken on this one day of every year right inside and it was sprinkled once on the mercy seat seven times before the mercy seat he could only go into that place with blood brothers and sisters we don't carry in the blood that's not the idea and the Lord Jesus has not gone in and literally taken his blood into heaven that's not the idea the idea is this that the priest was entering in in the value of a sacrifice brothers and sisters I as I kneel in prayer I enter into the august presence of God by the blood of Jesus by the sacrifice of Christ what a privilege what a privilege that's number one we're thinking of the three possessions number two is in verse 20 he says not only have we liberty and freedom and confidence but we have a new and living 
way. This is wonderful. This expression, new and living way, it means the newly slain and living way. That's the literal meaning of the word. The newly slain and living way. Now, some of you will, 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 will leave me at this point because you don't agree with what I'm going to say. <laughs> but I don't believe that this verse is saying that the veil was the flesh of Christ. I don't think that's what he's saying. Let me read it like this. That we have or by a new and living way which is consecrated for us through the veil and this new and living way is his flesh. That's how I understand it. Now feel free to nod your head if you agree. Don't shake it if you disagree. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I don't think that in the letter to the Hebrews we have anything about the veil being rent. Now I know that there's, there's a great line, there's a great teaching about the veil representing the manhood of Christ, how it was a barrier between us and God. I don't think that's what's in this passage at all. There's no thought of the veil being rent. I know the, the great uh, picture that when the Lord Jesus died, the veil of the temple was rent. We are never told in Scripture that the flesh of Christ was rent, that the body of Christ was rent. Quite the opposite. No, no. <laughs> Don't mob me at the interval, please. Unless you just say you agree. <laughs> but... What the writer is talking about here, this new and living way is his flesh. And this new and living way takes us through the veil. That's the point. What, is this, what does this mean then? It simply means this, that brothers and sisters, by becoming a man, this is what we have in the earlier part of the chapter, a body has thou prepared me, by becoming a man, and by suffering and bleeding and dying on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, and by rising from the dead and going back into heaven, he has taken flesh where it never was before. He has taken manhood where it never was before. He has entered heaven not the way he left it. He's entered in a newly slain and living way. Praise God. And so when John looks at the throne, he sees a lamb standing. Now that's the posture of resurrection. You, 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 you can trace this through, but you'll see the Lord Jesus standing. He's standing in the midst, uh, in the upper room. He's standing on the shore. He's always standing in resurrection. He's standing in the vigor of resurrection life. And, and John sees, but this lamb that is standing is a freshly slain lamb. What he's looking at really is the newly slain and living way. Now let's try and understand this. Because the Lord Jesus has entered into glory in a way he never was there before. He has taken manhood into glory. And the way that he has entered in is the way that I enter in. Now, now let's just try and explore this a little bit. You see, brothers and sisters, believe it or not, you have a way, a new route into glory, a new route into the presence of God that Moses didn't have, that David didn't have that Abraham didn't have. Do you believe that? Don't be saying Amen. But it's true. 
Because the Old Testament saints, they approached God on the basis of men on earth. Now if you read the Psalms, I love the Psalms. But, but I feel sorry for Christians who restrict everything to the Psalms. You know, there's some Christians that will only sing the Psalms and so on. Because the Psalms give you the experience of man on earth dealing with God in heaven. That's wonderful. Wonderful experience. And we can enter into it, we can enjoy it. But when we come into the New Testament, brothers and sisters, we have something different. And Paul reveals a truth that is absolutely staggering. That is not our approach to God, our relationship with God is not on the basis of men on earth approaching a God in heaven. It is on the basis of a man in heaven. I don't know if we can grasp that. Maybe it's difficult to convey, it's difficult to grasp. But our approach to God is different from the Old Testament saints. They could never dream of a man in flesh, in the presence of God, the immediate presence of God in heaven. They could never dream of that. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus has entered in and there is now a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil and that new and living way is his flesh. There is a man in glory. Isn't that wonderful? That is, that's tremendous. And so, yes, I've got boldness to approach God. But then, maybe some of the Old Testament saints had boldness to approach God. They had. Uh, because they were looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ. But, I come in a new and living way. And I come to God on the basis that there is a man already in glory. And, you see, in the future, I'm going to be where he is. There's a wonderful verse, I'm not sure, I first read it in a book by, uh, uh, I think it was Hewlett, uh, T. Hewlett, The Glories of Christ. And uh, you know that hymn, No Future But Glory, if you use like and love hymn book you'll know it. No future but glory, Lord Jesus, of we. I'm not sure if he made up this verse or if it was a verse that we don't really sing, but he quoted this verse anyway. No future but glory, Lord Jesus, have we, for man is in glory already in thee. The brighter the glory that shines in thy face, the clearer our title to glory through grace. <laughs> and what he's saying is this, and this is the message of the Hebrews, that because a man has gone into God's presence, he has blazed the trail. He's opened up a new way. And one day, I'm going to be there too. And so are you. And we're going to be there as glorified men. Now, now we're going to be different from the Lord. We're going to be like him in many ways. But we're, we're not going to be just exactly like the Lord. He will always be the firstborn among many brethren. There will always be a great gulf between the glorified saints and the glorified Christ. But nevertheless, he has opened up a new way that guarantees I will be there. But this is not to do with the future. This is to do with the present. That I approach God on the basis that there is a man in glory who represents me. Now this is, this is brought out more fully, I think, by the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Ephesians. These truths should excite us. They should, they should thrill us. 
Paul, Paul says to the Ephesians, listen, what happened to Christ has happened. It's not as going to happen to you, it's already happened to you. You are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ. It's staggering. And the writer just says, now, you could never have that under Judaism. You could never have boldness and liberty, as we're discussing. You could never have this new and living way. And he says, verse 21, having a high priest over the house of God. You say, wait a minute, you, you, you did have that under Judaism. <laughs> you did have a high priest. Well, have you got a Newbury Bible? Sell your shirt and get a Newbury Bible. I, I'm not on commission or anything like that. I don't know if they're on the book stand. But uh, get yourself a Newbury Bible. And you'll find that uh, in his footnote or in his margin, he gives the rendering, having a great priest. Woost, I think it's Woost, says, having a priest, a great one. A great one. You see, you'll find this, brothers and sisters, that Israel had a priest, and they had a high priest, but they never had a great high priest. That title is reserved for the Lord Jesus. And so, the writer is saying, yes, Israel, Judaism has its priest, and has its high priest, but you have a priest, a great one. And, and you've been possibly, in the past sessions, exploring some of the greatness of the high priest that's the theme of the letter to the Hebrews he is a great priest a great high priest over the household of God and so I discover that I have liberty to enter the presence of God I can feel completely at home in God's presence I have freedom of speech you know, the wonderful thing is that I can be open with God. I can tell God things I would never tell anyone else. I can say things to God I would never say to anyone else. Without presumption, but with the liberty and freedom that comes through the sacrifice of Christ. And I come to Him on the basis of this new and living way, conscious that there is a man who represents glorified manhood in heaven. And I find when I get into the presence of God that I get a, I, I hope I'm not being irreverent here if I say this, I get a smile from my great priest who welcomes me into the presence of God and who intercedes for me and, and who aids me in my approach to God. Isn't that wonderful? I have a great priest over the house of God. Dear brother and dear sisters, some of us, I'm sure, in the past 12 months have struggled with various things. There's been loss, there's been problems. But just remember this, that there are three possessions that nothing can touch. Liberty to enter God's presence. The new and living way, a man in glory, and a great priest over the house of God. Now every believer has it. Every believer has these three wonderful possessions. And as a result, now, verse 22, uh, the writer says, Let us. Here are the, the practices 
that are expected. Here are the, the implications of all that we have in Christ, of all the sacrifice that he has made. And he's going to talk about three things, and you will uh, be well familiar with this. First of all, verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us consider. Let us draw near. That's communion. Let us hold fast. It has to do with confession. And let us consider, of course, is consideration. And so the writer is saying, because of the work of Christ and because you have liberty and access and a great priest and the force of these exhortations as you will probably know is let us go on drawing near let us go on holding fast let us go on considering one another in other words these are not special things to be done on Sundays these are not, these are not things to be done on special occasions these are the habitual characteristics of believers in Christ they go on drawing near they go on holding fast they go on considering each other and so I just want to bring this to a close on this very practical note the three practices that flow from the better sacrifice of Christ he says verse 22 let us draw near let us draw near you know as we face a, a new year <clears throat> it's been upon my heart uh, this, this, these verses that, that 2022 will be a year when we draw near a year of drawing near to God somebody gave me recently the journals of Jim Elliot now I'd read some extracts from them but I hadn't read them all through and uh, I'm very grateful for that gift the, the journals of Jim Elliot you will know Jim Elliot who died in the 1950s uh, uh, he was martyred uh, along with others and what impressed me on reading these journals is not the ability that he had although he was a man of ability it was not the energy although he was a man of energy it was not his zeal it was not how he wanted to win the lost what impressed me more than anything else about the journals of Jim Elliot was this here is a young man who is serious about drawing near about drawing near can I just say to the young people uh, today, this is the priority of Christian living. It's not what's, what goes on up here. It's not your public participation. That's all valuable. It's not even your outreach. That's valuable too. But the first thing, the vital thing, the, the core of our Christian experience is this that we are people who habitually draw near and I have a burden about this because we live in such busy intrusive times uh, we, we're so connected whether it's by social media whatever way we're so connected and, and, and we're so um, involved in so much that's going on 
And there are so many voices clamoring for our attention that previous generations, I'm talking like an old man now, I'm always going back to previous generations, but uh, it must be my age, but uh, previous generations never had. And I would suggest, as I look into my own heart, the great, great need is for me to make 2022 a year of drawing near. Drawing near. You know, the believers, I'm on about the past again, you see. You'll just have to write it off and say he's just an old fogey. But uh, the believers of the past used to talk a lot about their quiet times. I don't know if... Do, 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 do all believers have quiet times these days? I don't know. I hope they do. We don't hear an awful lot about it. Brothers and sisters, this comes before my confession before men. This comes before my consideration for the believers. Everything flows. Every, every aspect of my Christian life takes character from whether or not I am a drawer near. Whether, I, whether or not I am somebody who is habitually in God's presence. Whether or not I am somebody who makes time for communion with God. Now these are simple things. But they are vital things. And I've discovered in my own life, and you have too, that the most necessary things in the Christian life are often the most difficult things. I'll confess, I'm, I'm, I'm confessing a lot today, but uh, I'll confess to you this, that I enjoy study. I enjoy sitting down with your commentaries and your lexicon and your, and your software and your open Bible and your notebook. And, and I can do that for hours, that's no problem. And many of us are the same, we enjoy that. But I'll tell you something that is very difficult in my life, and that is just closing the door and getting down on my knees and spending time in God's presence. And no amount of study, no amount of commentaries, no amount of lexicons will ever make up for that. And so I'm speaking to myself. What I like about the, the letter to the Hebrews, I think it's about 12 times this expression used, let us. This is a good model for preachers and teachers, I think. The writer is not, he's not berating the saints. He's trying to bring them along with him. He's trying to say, let, it reminds me, having said about the Psalms, it reminds me, of course, of uh, the wonderful song of degrees. I was glad when they said to me, let us. You know, it's nice to be encouraged. Can I just say to the older saints, encourage the younger ones to come along with you. Encourage them to come into the presence of God with you. There are, there are saints that I will never forget. Because they knelt in prayer with me. And they showed me the way into God's presence. Let us draw near. Can I just appeal that whatever your wish list and whatever your resolution list is for 2022, put this right at the head. Let us draw near. With a true heart, that's sincerity, and full assurance of faith, that is confidence. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I love this because remember he's writing to Hebrews 
and they know exactly what he's talking about. We have no idea, we have to think, well, what's he, what does he mean here? They know exactly what he's talking about. Before the priests could function, they had to be sprinkled and they had to be washed. They were washed with water. Their bodies were, were bathed in water. It was a ceremonial cleansing. And then they were sprinkled, blood was taken and was applied to them. And of course you will know, somebody has said that in the Old Testament, sometimes the blood, somebody has said it was splashed, it was poured out. And then sometimes it was smeared. The priest would take it on his, on his thumb or on his hand and he would smear it on the horns of the altar. And then there were times it was sprinkled. When the blood is splashed, it tells us of the vast scope, the, the quantity, the, 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 the vast reach of the sacrifice of Christ. When it's smeared, it tells us of the direct application of the blood of Christ. And when it's sprinkled, it tells me of the value of the sacrifice. Now, the writer says, just like the Old Testament priests were washed and they were sprinkled and only when that happened were they ready and fitted to function as priests. So, you have been washed. First of all, your hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's justification. The blood has dealt with my sins and made me suited to be in God's presence. Our bodies washed with pure water. Sanctification. It's dealt with my guilt. It's dealt with my defilement. And so I am suited, and so are you, to draw near to God. Now, there's every encouragement, you see. You see, we, we sometimes fail to appreciate this that when we draw near to God God has has opened every door he's made it so easy he's made it so suitable he's given us every encouragement I wonder how we find it so difficult we find it so difficult because there are other things that, that come in and, and press upon us but, but God is, is making us aware of this that we are suited to draw near to him there's a new and living way there's a high priest uh, that uh, we have this liberty and not only that but we've been justified we've been sanctified we are suited to draw near to God and if I can say this dear brother, dear sister if you close your door and you get on your knees and you seek the face of God you'll find that he is far more delighted and seeking your presence than you are seeking his presence let us draw near secondly <clears throat> let us hold fast verse 23 and it is the confession or the profession the confession of our faith now depending on what version you're using you may well see that that word faith it is actually the word hope and so the writer is saying let us draw near to God in communion let us hold fast the confession in confession let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering you see the Hebrews were tempted to waver 
You'll know that this is a, a feature of this book, that, that there were some who had professed Christianity, who were influenced by Christianity. They would not be what we would call true Christians yet. They were just standing. It was a wee bit like in the Old Testament. You remember they stood on the borders of the Promised Land. Would they go in or would they not? There were people like that that the writer is addressing here. He's talking about people that, that might be, that haven't taken the step into Christianity yet. They haven't fully trusted Christ. He's encouraging them to do so. And, and there was a, a tendency to waver and maybe to turn back now we're in a different situation today but brethren and sisters I suggest to you that there is the temptation sometimes for us to waver in our Christian path and our Christian progress there's a, there's, a very, there's a very strong temptation sometimes to turn back just to ease off a little bit and maybe there have been disappointments maybe there have been discouragements in the past year maybe things have been hard but I'll tell you this things were difficult for the Hebrews they were enduring persecution when they professed Christianity they were basically severing their ties with their nation nationalism was finished they were also very often severing ties with even their immediate family they were being persecuted the Bible talks about them taking joyfully the spoiling of their goods they were losing out financially there was so much that, that would discourage them. Now the writer says, In light of the sacrifice of Christ, I want you to hold fast the confession of your hope. And that's a wonderful thing. The confession of your hope. What does this mean? Well, I suppose it means, first of all, that, that I hold fast the profession, I, I hold fast the, the great doctrines of my hope. I, I believe what the Bible says. I hold fast, I'm, I'm holding fast to the truth of the Word of God. It might also mean that I publicly declare them. And so there's the idea of confession. And, and so I subscribe to the great doctrines of hope, the great doctrines of Christianity. But there's something more than that too. I think this idea of holding fast to your confession of your hope is that you are ordering your life in such a way that it corresponds with a hope that you have fixed in your heart and you believe in. And so the Apostle Peter, he says, be, be ready. When somebody comes along and asks you a reason of the hope that's in you, how do they know they've got a hope? How do they know? Are you running around with a badge saying, I have a hope in me? Ask me about it. Peter is assuming that his readers will live in such a way that people will understand that they have a hope. There's something, they're living for something different. They're living with their eyes on, you know, it's easy just to adopt the values of the world, isn't it? We live in a materialistic world. We live in a world of, of gratification now. We live in a world where leisure and the pursuits of leisure and material things has become the be all and end all. I hope that's not what people see when they look at me. I hope it's not what people see when they look at you. I hope that they think in your workplace that this man or this woman lives by different rules for a different world and they see by your life the confession of your hope 
And Peter says, I imagine they'll soon get to ask you about it. <laughs> Have you ever had that? Anyone ever asked you? What, what is it about you that's different? I, I think that's the problem, you see. If, if we were really living as we ought to live, then, then there'd be no problem with inquiries. I think there'd be plenty of inquiries. If I was living as a Christian ought to live, people would be asking me, what's going on? And so he says, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. And then Mr. Newbury puts this in brackets as a kind of explanation. For he is faithful, the promised. Isn't it wonderful? You know, the way that you're going to survive in 2022, the way that you're going to keep going, is not because you're strong. Uh, you know, I, I was talking about this the other day, that sometimes we just adopt the way that people talk in the world, and we say to each other, uh, you can do this. You know, you're a strong person. Brothers and sisters, that's not Christian talk. That's not how we talk as Christians. We're aware of our weakness. Don't try to build up people by telling them how strong they are. Build them up by telling how strong their God is. And so the writer says, if you're going to hold fast, you'll only hold fast. If you grasp this, that he is faithful. You can only be faithful because he is faithful. And when you get hold of the fact that your God is a God who can be relied upon implicitly to fulfill his promises. You're going to need faith. Faith and hope are, are, are very closely linked together. Because the hope that is set before us, the hope that we are having our eyes fixed upon, we, we realize it. In fact, this very writer says that it's the, it's the evidence of things not seen. Faith, it's, the, it, it, it's linked with the hope. It's, it, it's linked with realizing and grasping what is set before us. And so the writer says, I want you to, first of all, draw near. Be men and women of communion with God. There's an order here. If you are a man or a woman who habitually draws near to God, you'll be able to hold fast. Remembering that God is faithful. And then, finally, verse 24, let us consider one another. That's nice, isn't it? To provoke. Now, now do you ever provoke the saints? <laughs> I'm sure you do. I, I provoke them too. Not always to love and to good works, I assure you. Sometimes we're quite difficult to live with. You know, we, we tend to think that, that uh, other people are difficult to live with. Just look at it from the other standpoint, uh, dear brother, dear sister. We can be very difficult to live with. And uh, provocation in the scripture very often is negative. But this is positive. And the writer is saying this. When I think of my brothers and sisters... I have not to be passive in my fellowship with them. I have to be active. And he links it very closely, we'll talk about this in a minute, about gathering together. You see, very often if we come to the gatherings of the Lord's people, just like an attendance, without preparation, passively sitting 
waiting to be fed or waiting to be ministered to people say I got nothing out of the meeting it betrays a wrong attitude when we come together the writer says let us consider one another fellowship is never passive it's active and so as I anticipate meeting my brothers and sisters the writer is saying be considerate of them to provoke them to love look to do and to say and to express actively things that will promote them and, and uh, stimulate them to love and to good works now that gives a new meaning to fellowship doesn't it so when I think of my brothers and sisters it's not so much well it's meeting time again as I come round to meet them and I have fellowship with them I am actively looking out for opportunities to provoke them to love and to good works and the writer says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together how appropriate <laughs> for, these, for these times that we're living in but I suggest that the Hebrews would possibly know that when they gathered together these were times when they could be targeted uh, for persecution because this is the visible manifestation of their fellowship and so there might be the tendency to drop off the attendance as the church gathers together, the local assembly gathers together and so the writer says don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is let's just bring it up to our day brothers and sisters let us remember this that the testimony of the local church necessitates gathering together now, now we've all been using zoom and, and uh, somebody was saying I saw you on zoom last night <laughs> well uh, we've all been using zoom and we've all been using the internet and, and, and there's a, a use for all these things we understand that and, and there are people that were reaching perhaps in the gospel that, that perhaps would never come together but as far as the gatherings of the Lord's people are concerned it's absolutely vital to meet together now we, we understand that these are strange times and we obey the rules and we obey the government edicts as far as they apply to all gatherings but we are absolutely aware of this that in order to function properly as a New Testament assembly we must gather together first of all as we gather together we experience the Lord's presence in a particular way now you can know the Lord's presence at home there's no doubt about that lo I am with you always you can, you can always wherever you are experience the presence of the Lord but there is a particular way where two or three are gathered together in my name there am I in the midst there is a, a particular way in which the Lord is present as his people gather together secondly you can find that you can only benefit from the spiritual gifts of others when you gather together uh, you see the idea of spiritual gift is this that if I have a gift it's not for my benefit it's for your benefit if you have a gift as you have it's not for your benefit it's for my benefit and, and there needs to be that interaction of believers gathering together in order to mutually build each other up and in this very context it is impossible to provoke unto love and to good works to consider one another in this uh, sense in which the writer is, uh, is speaking 
if we don't meet together with the Lord's people. So let me just encourage us and, and credit to the saints for putting on this in-person conference and as I say, uh, courage uh, for coming as well. Credit to you for coming. But let us remember this, that there's a great value in the gatherings of the Lord's people gathering together. Let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching let me just finish on this point as you see the day approaching what day is this? what's the writer talking about? well I was interested to find reading uh, what the Bible teaches Mr Flanagan's commentary on Hebrews that he uh, looks on the um, uh, he looks on the uh, the day in this passage as referring to AD 70 some commentators look at that and they see the day of which the Lord Jesus spoke when he said that there would be not one stone left upon another talking about the temple and uh, Mr Flanagan points out that for the Hebrew uh, to think of AD 70 coming this day the Lord has spoken of uh, when all the uh, ritual and ceremony of Judaism would be done away with completely uh, and well that might well be the case it could be the day of AD 70, the day when the temple would be destroyed, when the stones would be taken down as the Lord predicted some suggest this is looking forward to the day of the Lord the day of the Lord begins uh, after the rapture, when the, when the church has been taken home, then begins on earth the day of the Lord. The day when the Lord directly intervenes in the affairs of men. And that period lasts right through to the end of the millennium. That's the, I hope we're all up in our days. I'm sure we all are. The day of the Lord. And others refer to it as the day of Christ. This is the day of Christ. And somebody has said that as the day of the Lord begins on earth, so the day of Christ begins in heaven. The day of Christ, when the raptured church are home with the Lord, it's the day of review, the day of reward. Some have suggested that this is looking on, beyond that, to the day of God. And so you've got the day of the Lord on earth, you've got the day of Christ in heaven and at the end of the millennium you have the eternal day of God now I'll let you decide which one you want because I think it's impossible to be absolutely dogmatic but I wonder I, I, I should say this as well it used to annoy me in Bible readings as I was, when I was a young man because the brethren would say well both, both sides can be true and I would say but they're not you know, one's true and one isn't true but I, I, I've come to see the value of being able to say well maybe it doesn't really matter too much how we look at this and I just wonder as I sit down to suggest this that perhaps he's just talking the writer in a sort of generic sense that in the darkness in which we are now, we're, we're in a night scene. And he's saying that if you think of situations in the night and, and whether somebody is ill or whether it's, whether it's soldiers or whether it's sailors or whatever it is in the night uh, and there's the encouragement and the stimulation of each other because the dawn is just about to break. Things are about to change. The day is about to dawn. And the writer is just saying simply this, that your circumstances may be dark at the moment, but just remember, the day is approaching. The day is approaching. Dear brother, dear sister, can I just say this? As I sit down, you've maybe felt it's been pretty dark. 
and you maybe think your circumstances are dark, let us encourage and stimulate and exhort one another as we see the day approaching. And whether you want to take that as the rapture or the revelation of the Lord, or whether you want to look on to the, the eternal day of God, it's all going to be ablaze with the glory of God. John says, I know it's a different context, the darkness is passing and the true light is now, the light is now shining. Let me just apply that. Brothers and sisters, we're almost at the dawn. Don't give up now. Don't slacken off now. In fact, in the reverse, exhort one another. Let's stimulate each other even more as we see the day approaching. Three possessions, three practices that flow from the sacrifice of Christ. May this meditation this afternoon, I'm glad to see your brother's arrived uh, so he can take over in the evening, but may this simple meditation this afternoon encourage us to think much of the sacrifice of Christ and to realize that it has implications uh, in terms of what I possess as a believer and what I practice.